Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, uh, and we'll be in verse, beginning in verse 46 this morning. It is, as Chase has said, the first Sunday in Advent, a season where we, we do remember Christ's first coming, but only in as much as it, it, uh, it shows us that God is faithful to keep His promises, and He has among uh, all of His promises promised that Christ is coming again. And so we look forward with hope and anticipation to that second coming. This morning, we're going to begin a four-week series. There are four Sundays in Advent. We're going to begin uh, this season, and we're going to look over these next four weeks at, uh, at four songs that are sung in the first two chapters of Luke, uh, songs that are sung in response to the promises that are made to the people of God. Uh, we're going to consider how it, it is that, uh, that throughout the Old Testament, and in particular with these, uh, these that we find singing in Luke, there was this anticipation, this patient waiting, this hope. And though God answered that hope in His first coming, we know on this, from this side of the cross now that there is a second coming, and we wait for that final consummation of all of the promises of God. We wait patiently for the glorious resurrection, for the judgment of God that is coming against the wicked, for the eternity in which we will have face-to-face fellowship as a glorified people with Jesus Christ. And so we join the saints of the Old Testament in the same kind of patient waiting that we see them exhibit as they wait for that first coming of Christ. And we join the saints since Christ's first coming in the very same patient waiting for Christ to come again. Waiting patiently on the Lord is the nature of the Christian life. There are a dozen psalms uh, in which waiting is described either as the condition of the psalmist or the psalmist is encouraging us to wait patiently for God to, to, to keep His promises. And so it's right and good then that we, uh, we wait upon the Lord and that we encourage one another day to day by His Word as we continue in that waiting. God has made promises to His people. And we are a people who know those promises. We know that God's character is to keep those promises. And we wait patiently as, uh, as God continues to fulfill those promises. Let me pray for us and we'll read Mary's song this morning. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you that you've called us together this morning. We come into this place as a people uh, who are, are in varying uh, places of encouragement or discouragement, uh, who are struggling more or less as we wait for Christ to come again. But Father, in all of these things, whether we rejoice or we mourn, we do so as those who recognize uh, that the world is not yet put back as it should be that you are doing this work and have promised to finish this work. And so we wait patiently for Christ to come again. We pray that as we do, Father, you would speak to us by your word and spirit this morning, uh, that we would come to uh, a better understanding of you, your character, the work that you are engaged in in the world, how we fit into that work. Father, that we would be encouraged and strengthened, uh, that our hope would be renewed as we wait for Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word, Luke 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, a few things I want to draw out this morning from Mary's song. Mary, of course, uh, if you remember the Christmas story, if you're familiar with this narrative, uh, the angel has come to Mary and told her, you will bear a son, and that son's name will be Jesus. Mary understands that though she is a virgin, she is going to bear the Messiah. And, and that understanding, having been delivered to her from God, by the messenger of God, causes her to break out into song. And as she does, we're going to see that she praises God. That's her, her immediate instinct. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then she's going to go on in two movements to sing this song to God. That first movement uh, is there in verse 48 uh, through 49. It, she's focused on God's blessing for her in particular. How she personally has been blessed by God. In verse 50, she transitions. It's no longer about her uh, and, and she who is being saved by God. But in verse 50, for all who fear Him. And in 51 through 55, she goes on to describe the blessing of God for all who fear Him. And so this morning, three things. First, God's mercy in salvation is for each of us. God's mercy in salvation is for each of us. Second, God's mercy in salvation is for all of us. God's mercy in salvation is for all of us. And finally, God's mercy in salvation turns the world upside down. God's mercy in salvation turns the world upside down. What do we mean by this first point? God's mercy and salvation is for each of us. I, I mean that though God is infinite, immense beyond measure, and though the work of redemption that He has worked in Christ is worked in, on a cosmic scale, a whole people being redeemed, judgment being executed against the wicked, the earth and the, the heavens, all of creation being renewed, restored, destroyed, if you will, in order to rise from the ashes as a new heaven and a new earth, all of these things, history and creation itself being made new, this work of redemption comes to rest upon each individual believer. God has made promises, and though He has made them to a people, they find their ultimate fulfillment in each person that He saves. What I'm getting at is this, God's promises are deeply personal and intimate. His promises are the promises not only of deliverance from judgment, but even more than this, the restoration of a relationship, fellowship with God. Loving fellowship, restored friendship with God that, yes, is true of a people. And we're going to look at that next. But Mary begins here by recognizing the intimacy, the, the personal quality 
of God's saving relationship with her. Look at Mary's song again. Mary opens with this full-throated praise of God who is her Savior. Her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices. Look at what she says here. In God, my Savior. She's only going to very briefly talk about herself in the beginning of this song, but twice in this song. She, she makes a very direct connection between herself and God. God is my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Look at what, he, what she says. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary breaks out into praise, and then she tells us why she's praising God, why she's magnifying God, because He is my Savior, because He has looked on the humble estate of His servant, and by implication has not left me there, rather than continuing in a humble estate from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And finally, because He who is mighty, literally in the original language here, the mighty one, has looked, has done great things for me. She praises God, and and the beginning of that praise is a recognition recognition of what God has done for Mary. Now, what God has done for Mary, of course, there, there is a significant element of this in the context that is wrapped up in the very unique position that Mary holds in redemptive history. What God has promised to Mary here cannot and will not ever be repeated. There is no other woman in history who has been the mother of the Messiah and given birth to the Messiah. The the church throughout history has even known her as the Atikos, that is, the God-bearer. It's a, a profoundly unique position that Mary holds, and one that all by itself certainly causes us to recognize the blessing that God has placed on her, so that we do indeed say that she is blessed. But Mary is not only praising God because of this unique role that she will play in history. She is praising God because in this unique role, that what, what she is participating in, what God is inviting her into and including her in, is actually the unfolding of the work of salvation, a work that even Mary needs herself and that she will be blessed by and benefit in. She calls herself humble. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, we're going to get into the rest of the section in just a, a few minutes and unpack it in more detail, but I want to jump ahead to it now. Look at what she, as she describes the work of God for all of those who fear him. Look at what she says in 52. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Here, she's not just saying in the the opening verses, I am blessed. And then in the later verses, and everyone else who fears God is blessed. But she draws a connection between her identity as the one who God has saved, the one who is of humble estate, and she has joined herself to all of the people of God, identified herself with all of the people of God by acknowledging that all of us who are in need and who fear God and will receive the blessing of God are those who are of a humble estate. Mary begins in such a way that invites us to consider that though we have not received the particular promise that she receives here, 
with respect to giving birth to Christ. That's hers and hers alone. It is a part of, part and parcel with all of the saving work of God for his people in eternity. It is ultimately this for which she praises God. Her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices. She begins by acknowledging that God is working salvation for her and she praises God for it. It's easy, uh, I think, as we consider the overwhelming reality of the finished work of Christ and the things that are, are yet to come and to feel utterly small in the face of it. It's almost as though that we believe God's done these things. We know that he's done these things for us and we will benefit from them. But, but God doesn't actually know who I am personally, small as I am, insignificant as I am. I was thinking uh, as I was preparing this week, it's a lot like a concert or a sporting event. We go into these places, and sometimes we make a negative comparison to this, right? Because there's, there's a kind of worship going on in these places. But for a moment, I want us to set aside criticism of that, and I want us to recognize what's right and good and, and what's true that's modeled by this, how our hearts are indeed drawn to worship. We go into these places, and we join our voices with everyone else. There is a common uh, a, a desire here. There's a unity that we instinctively recognize. Nobody has to stand up with a sign and tell us that that's our team and we are bound together by our love for this team and our desire to see this team do well. And we cheer and we even believe that somehow good has come to us when our team wins, right? Nobody on that team's team knows who I am, right? I, I can come into that place and feel that community feel that fellowship, join my voices to theirs as we cheer for our team, as we sing the songs that are being sung by the band on stage, and we can feel a kind of unity, and at the same time, we know Bono doesn't have the foggiest idea who I am. He wouldn't know me if he saw me on the street. And we know this instinctively. We know it couldn't be. He couldn't possibly know everybody who's in the room at all of his concerts. My beloved predators couldn't possibly know all the people in the stands in downtown Nashville on a Thursday night. But listen, brothers and sisters, God is doing something infinitely, infinitely more important. And just like with, with the concert or the sporting event, we are gathered together and we lift up our voices and we, we have an identity in this and we recognize one another and we rejoice in God and we are, we are praising Him for what He's done and cheering for what He will do. But completely contrary to what we know in life, the God whom we cheer and worship and serve knows each and every one of us personally. The mercy of God in salvation is for each of us. Now listen, what hope is ours? What encouragement to know from His Word that He knows us. He doesn't just know us as a people. He knows each one of us as persons. And the promises that he has made are made not merely to a people, but they are made to each one of us. And we've seen him in history fulfill those promises. We know now that he is fulfilling them. And we have 
the utmost confidence, our hope, a hope that will not be disappointed, God's word says. That a day is coming when Christ will return and all things will be made new. And that promise is for us. Yes, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but it's also, and we can't rush past this truth, it's for me. And it's for each one of you who fear the Lord. What an encouragement for us this morning in this season of hope. Our hope is not only in these four weeks in uh, late November and through December as we anticipate Christmas. Advent for me growing up was what Advent for most evangelicals is growing up. It was a different piece of bubblegum every day as I anticipated opening the presents that were under the tree, right? Uh, Advent was about getting to that Christmas day, and theologically, spiritually, it is, right? We're remembering that first coming of Christ, looking forward to his second and final coming. But we live in a world in which not all has yet been made right. And we can, we can step back and big picture, we can see the things that are wrong. War and hatred, destruction, rebellion. But God has not only made promises to each of us individually, He knows each of our circumstances individually. He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Brothers and sisters, God knows you. He knows your circumstances. The promises He has made, He's made to you personally. He loves you and is coming again for you. And that's the hope we live in day in and day out. Second this morning, God's mercy and salvation is for all of us. If you don't read the first two points carefully, it sounds like I've said the same thing two different ways. But I've made a very determined and intentional distinction between each of us, which individualizes us, and now all of us, which acknowledges our togetherness, our fellowship in Christ. Mary does something quite beautiful in her song in verse 50. She transitions from acknowledging how God has blessed her to rejoicing in God's blessing for all who fear him. Look at the text here. It would have been perhaps entirely justifiable for Mary to go from verse 47, the middle of 46 there, all the way through 55, praising and thanking God for what he has done for her personally. And that's often how our prayers sound, isn't it? When we begin thanking God, so often our thanksgiving is about what I have received from God, what God is doing for me, the promises God has made to me and His faithfulness to me. And that's right and it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Mary would not have been wrong to have only thanked God for what He was doing and would do for her. But in verse 50, she pivots. Look at, I'm going to begin in 49. For He who is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That is, his character is holiness. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him. It's not just me. Everyone who fears God from generation to generation receives the mercy of God. Mary calls God her Savior, and now she speaks of his mercy for all who fear him. The, the promises of God are deeply personal as we've considered this morning. The promises of God are also vast and cosmic, but the promises God has made to bless are reserved for his people. I want to pause here and make sure this is clear. Everything in the first point about God's 
knowing you, loving you, blessing you, making promises to you that he will fulfill faithfully to you. Those things are true for Mary. They're true for me. They're true for each one of you individually if you are trusting in Christ, repenting of your sins, resting in nothing else, counting on, depending on nothing else but the finished work of Christ. Now, the way that's described here in our text this morning is the fear of God. His mercy is for those who fear Him. I want to talk about fear for a moment. I think that the word gives the wrong impression because of our modern English usage. Uh, It makes us think almost exclusively of the feeling we have during a scary movie, right? Or when a, a sound wakes us up in the middle of the night, Uh, Children in particular probably are most familiar with the word fear and what it means when they think of that thing that is unknown and dangerous. That's not the kind of fear that Scripture is referring to when it talks about the fear of God. When we read in Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, uh, that God shows mercy, as Mary says here, and she's only calling back to the promises of God in the Old Testament. He shows mercy to those who fear Him. It's not rooted in an unknown threat. Most of us probably, because this is how fear is used in English today, we we wrestle with how we're supposed to understand this this, uh, command, this encouragement to fear the Lord. If God blesses those who fear Him, we should seek to understand then what the Bible means by fear. It means, first of all, to acknowledge God as He is. To acknowledge His power and His sovereignty. Uh, to fear God is to, to, in the face of God and who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be, not only in the words He's spoken, by the, but by the great acts of power that He has performed throughout history and continues to perform and will ultimately perform on the day that Christ returns. The fear of the Lord is to stand in the face of that and acknowledge it, worship it, praise it. To fear God, then, is to obey Him. We recognize His right to give us the law and the necessity of obeying that law because he is the rightful lawgiver. That's what it is to fear the Lord. Second, we might say that it means we're afraid to offend him. This is a different kind of fear, isn't it? I I think if we we consider our own lives and the, the examples we have in our own lives, we'll use the word fear this way, and it's nothing like the fear that we are talking about with a scary movie or the bumps in the night. Uh, the, the fear of disappointing someone is really an expression of love, isn't it? We fear disappointing someone because we love them, we respect them, we hold them in high regard. Our desire is to please them, and we worry, we fear, if you will, that we are going to disappoint them. This is the, the right uh, posture that we should take towards God. God has revealed Himself, and and we love the parts of the Bible where God talks about how loving He is, and how patient He is, and how merciful He is, how slow to anger, and and how He he gathers us, the tender images used in Scripture, that we're gathered as chicks, that we take refuge under His wing, 
But listen, brothers and sisters, this same God has also revealed himself to be a God who is full of wrath against sin and rebellion. They're not two gods, nor has God changed. God wasn't particularly young and impetuous in the Old Testament, but he grew up and became, you know, a little more chill in, uh, in the New Testament. No, the exact same God that we see in the Old Testament is the God we see in the New, both in his love and mercy and grace and patience and in his determination to execute justice against the wicked. To fear God is to acknowledge that this is who he is. It's uh, an often used example from C.S. Lewis's writing. And to the best of my recollection, there's at least twice that he does something like this in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, once with the, the beavers in the, the first book. And later, I think it's Lucy who's dying of thirst and wants to approach a, a stream. And a similar conversation takes place. The question is this, is he safe? Is Aslan the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia, is he safe? The beavers respond, oh goodness, no, who said anything about safe? Lucy says, if I come to the river, will you eat me? Do you eat little girls? And Aslan says, I've swallowed whole worlds. Fearing the Lord is acknowledging that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. For those of us who know this God and appropriately fear this God, his mercy is abundant. Our fear is not the, the terror of facing an unknown threat, but the sure knowledge that we offend a God who has loved us so perfectly. And we don't want to offend those we love. It is the sure knowledge that his love continues and that he disciplines those he loves. And we neither want to offend him nor to be disciplined by him. And so we see godly fear is not rooted in the unknown, but precisely in what is known about God. It's rooted in the knowledge of his power and might and love and a desire to show him love in return. God's mercy in salvation is for all of us. Who fear him. Mary began by acknowledging the personal blessing of God on her life. Now she transitions to God's mercy showered upon all who fear him. God's promises are deeply personal and intimate and at the same time profoundly cosmic. What I mean by cosmic is listen, God, the, the earth and everything else in it, the universe, when we turn our eyes up towards the sky, day or night. That is not going to go on as it is forever. And in the midst of that, God is going to save some of us. Scripture is clear. All of creation is under the curse. Paul says in Romans that it groans as it awaits the redemption. God's work of salvation is is going to, it is unfolding and will continue and ultimately will unfold on a cosmic scale. There's an I in salvation, but there's also a we. His salvation is from generation to generation. That, that salvation is for a people throughout time. His salvation is for Israel, his people, Abraham, and his offspring forever, Mary says. And as God promised to Abraham... 
She, what Mary's saying here at the end, do you see this? She's saying that this, this birth of the Messiah is a fulfillment not only of God's promises in some general sense, but it's a fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham. And what promise did God make to Abraham? That in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. She's not only pointing to the promise just made to her as a fulfillment of the covenant promises, but she is acknowledging in this covenant language, Abraham and to his offspring forever, the, the wideness of God's mercy in the world. It's not just an individual, it is a people. It is not just a particular ethnicity, but it is all peoples throughout the world. Regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of when they were born, where they were born, whether they have power in the world, wealth in the world, or they are among the poorest and weakest. No one is excluded from the call to fear God and in fearing God receive mercy. In the making of a people, God shows how wide His mercy is and display, displays His strength in salvation. None can oppose Him in this great salvation. You might say, what about the proud? He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What about the mighty? He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. What about the rich? The rich He has sent away empty. You see the display of strength. We may look at the proud, we may look at the mighty, we may look at the rich, and we may say to ourselves, what can we possibly do in the face of these? But God displays His strength and salvation. None can oppose Him in this great salvation, and none can stop Him from showing His mercy to whomever He wills. By it, he has made a people for himself, a people known as Israel. We're talking about this in Sunday school. The identity of who this Israel is in Scripture. In his great work of salvation, he keeps his promises, which he spoke to our fathers. In remembrance of his mercy, God is glorified and magnified by the great mercy which he has shown to us and the great love with which he has loved us. And in so glorifying himself, he abundantly blesses us. He blesses us with the gift of fellowship and community, communion that's ours with one another in Christ. All of the promises of God as they are being fulfilled in history, one of the things that we, we talk about sometimes right now and not yet, that God's promises are being fulfilled now. Some of them are true for us now. Some of them are true for us partially. Some of them will be fulfilled entirely on the last day. One of the things that is ours now is the fellowship and community that is established by God in salvation. Because as, as true as all of the intimate and personal qualities of His mercy and salvation are for us, it is equally true that in so doing, He is forming a people, creating a people, and that people is His, and we are His, and He is ours. I will be their God, right? They will be my people, He says. But there's also a horizontal component to that truth. There's a blessing in us being given to one another in Christ, 
His mercy in salvation are for all of us in Christ. When we look at one another, particularly remember this now when we sin against one another. The one against whom we sin is one whom the Lord has loved and given to us and us to him or her. When we are sinned against, the one who sinned against us, God's mercy is on them. This doesn't excuse the fact that we need to repent of our sin, particularly. We need to come to one another and apologize when we've done wrong. And we need to make it right in as much as that's possible. But understand, we do all of that in the context of being a people who belong to God and as such have the mercy of God placed upon us. It's a great blessing for us. Let me wrap up this morning with our third point. God's mercy and salvation turns the world upside down. Uh, all is reversal in God's kingdom. Uh, Christ spends so much of his time in the Gospels, doesn't he? Teaching about the kingdom. And as he teaches about the kingdom, everyone is confused. He, uh, he teaches in parables. But as confusing as the parables can be sometimes, not only for us today, but even in the text, we, we read that they were confused I think what really confused those who were hearing the message was the upside-down quality of the kingdom. Relative to what the world has told us is true and right and good, the mercy of God in salvation turns everything on its head. When God shows mercy, when God's strength is on display, the proud are scattered, the mighty are brought low, the rich are sent away empty, but... Those of humble estate are exalted. That means they're lifted up. They're humble. They're of low estate, but they are exalted and lifted up. The hungry are filled with good things. In the kingdom, everything is upside down compared to what the world believes is true. We see this exact expression given to us, not by an an apostle, but by those who most hated Christianity in Acts 17.6. Paul and his companions come into Thessalonica and they they preach the gospel and there are Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe and God is being praised, but there are some in the synagogue who are jealous. And so they they raise up a riot and they, they come before the leaders and they have a simple, single accusation. Here it is. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The mercy of God in salvation turns everything upside down. The gospel turns the world upside down. The world is in rebellion against God and has set itself up to overthrow God if they can. In their attempts, they believe themselves to be powerful. They believe themselves to be rich, and they are proud Pride in Scripture, particularly in the context of Mary's song here, pride is not just a, a sense of, uh, of sort of confidence. Uh, obviously, all of us have known moments where we feel proud of ourselves. We've gone after something difficult, and we've accomplished it, and we give thanks, and there's, there's a certain amount of pride that we might even say is, is fine, it's healthy, right? It's, it's completely understandable. We've worked hard and we've accomplished something. That's not the pride that Mary is talking about here or the pride that Scripture talks about that Mary is taking up. 
It is a pride that says, I am completely self-sufficient and I do not need God. In fact, I reject Him and I will provide all that is needed for myself, by myself. That's the kind of pride that Scripture says is utter wickedness and that God comes to destroy. The kind of pride that says, I have enough money to do all that is needed. I do not need God. I have enough power to do all that is needed. I do not need God. In fact, I have rejected God for all of these years. And look at the power and the money that I have. How could it possibly be true that he's not happy with this? He either doesn't exist or he doesn't care. Otherwise, I would not be wealthy. I would not be powerful. But here I am. And in their pride... They mock God. God comes into the world in Jesus Christ and he turns everything upside down so that the proud are torn down and the humble are lifted up. The gospel turns the world upside down. It can be disorienting for us as well, confusing, even discouraging, to live in a world where we know that the wicked prosper. In the Old Testament, the, in the wisdom literature, the poets, they, they often talk about this in the Psalms. I mean, Ecclesiastes is basically a whole book about this. What is the point even if I obey God and suffer and they rebel against God and prosper? It can be disorienting to us. But the king has come and is coming again. And his reign has already begun to overturn this world order. They recognized it in Thessalonica in the first century. This thing, this gospel, these people, they are turning the world upside down with the message that they are proclaiming. And that's what God does. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. He pulls down those who are proud and who are trusting in their power and wealth. And he exalts those who fear him, who know their need and their humble estate. God keeps his promises. And we, brothers and sisters, are those who are waiting patiently. It's, it's the posture of his people throughout history waiting for the Messiah to come. And when he has come in the first century, he does what God said he would do. And now God has said he will come again. This is who we are in the world, a people who wait patiently and encourage one another as we wait. We turn to his word. We remember his promises. God's mercy and salvation is for us. Let's pray.